Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basaur. I'm a consultant doctor and a psychiatrist based in Harley Street, London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Alexander Haslam. Uh, Alexander Haslam is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland in Australia, and uh, he's published many papers on, on many different aspects of psychology, but what we're going to focus on today is the psychology of leadership, and in particular is the author of a book called The New Psychology of Leadership. He is the co-author of that book with Stephen Reicher and Michael Platow. So um, your book, Alex, um, advocates a radically different view of the psychology of leadership from, from previous leadership theories and, uh, and so on. But before we get into that, why is leadership an important subject right now in the midst of this pandemic crisis? What's the relevance of leadership to the problems uh, the world is facing at the moment? Okay, well, I think there's sort of two stages to that to that answer. One is, I guess, the first is what is leadership? Well, leadership is the process of influencing people in a way that motivates them to contribute to the achievement of group goals. And there are key, there are then I think a number of reasons why this is a particularly important time for people to be contributing uh, to group goals and to be motivated to do so. So at one level, we need leadership to motivate people to, you know, medical staff to look after people who are sick and workers in, you know, different sectors who need to maintain stretch services, the general public who need to know what they can do to minimize the burden on those services and so on. So that's one thing. But so we just need people to be putting their shoulders to the wheel, as it were. And the second is that people need to know how they might do that. So I might make, want to make a contribution to the collective effort to address my part of the pandemic, the bit that bears upon me or my community. But I look to leaders to explain to me what I need to do and how what I'm going to do is going to fit with the sort of general effort and the effort of others. So, again, it's a, it's a time where we're looking for the coordination and the direction of collective effort. And leaders are absolutely critical for that mobilization. Um, there's also a sense in which what's required right now um, is individual sacrifice. The, the individual has to make a sacrifice for the group. Is there something about leadership that's linked to that idea? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. And I think that's that's absolutely critical. So the leader ultimately has to be uh, explaining to people why that contribution is needed, but also provide a framework within which to make it. So, again, you have to sell and build this idea of the greater good, the, the greater us of which the leader and the group and then individual uh, group members are part and people have to understand or come to believe in the, 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 if you like, the superior demands of that collective on their energy over and above the, you know, their own personal, unique, lower level interests. So it's about getting people to understand what can I do for us and what's in it for us rather than what's in it for me. And again, and again I think that's generally the case in leadership. In fact, it's always the case, but it's particularly the case at the moment, where, as you say, you, it's asking, requiring some level of sacrifice, a bit like going off to fight in the First World War or something, where clearly there's huge potential risks associated with going into the front line, and that you would only ever do that if you had been enjoined to understand the value of making that contribution to us. So, so leaders really critically, and this is where our conversation is going to go, I think, have to make us believe in us and in the value of us and in the, and in, and in the need to put us ahead of our personal self, our I-ness, if you like. And is this not 
particularly relevant right now when um, the, the, the world or, or, or country faces a threat like a virus, which requires massive uh, social coordination. Uh, the whole population may have to stay indoors or the whole population may have to not go to work or the whole population may have to isolate themselves and, and so on and so forth. So um, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's unusual for a whole society to have to be cohesive in this way. And it's really is. important yeah. in that in that respect. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. As is the as is the that collective identity, and so really, what we're where we're going is to say that leadership is about the the the, the, the articulation, the mobilisation, the understanding of that collective interest, and then the framing of people's efforts in relation to it. So, absolutely, you know, lots of the time, lots of times, you know, yeah, you might have a prime minister or a president or someone, and, and you you don't feel any particular need to listen to what they have to say because they're doing their thing and you're doing yours. But as you say, this is a time where you need coordination of pretty much every aspect of society, all sectors, all kind of levels. And everybody has this also associated with that, a genuine uncertainty about where we are and where we're going and, and providing that clarity of vision and, and that clarity of purpose is, is, you know, absolutely central to leadership at this time. And I think if you look around the world, too, you see some leaders are doing a much better job of that than others. Some of them are really struggling, actually, to overcome, for example, partisan lower level interests, for example, between Democrats and Republicans. If you can't get over those uh, lower level differences, then that's going to really stymie your efforts to, you, you know, to deal collectively with these problems. And again, I think you're seeing that played out in different places around the world. Um, so it's not just important, it may be crucial in terms of whether the world, and I, I'm, I'm wary of using these war metaphors, um, has a victory over the virus. Because if you go back to things like World War II, the, the explanation for why Britain succeeded during that war, uh, during very difficult times, is something to do with Churchill's leadership and, and the country following Churchill. So there's something yeah. about the notion of, of leadership or effective leadership or effective social cohesion as being vital to victory. Again, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, well, I have. And, I, and of course, I mean, of course, Churchill's leadership was absolutely critical in the Second World War. But the, but you're absolutely right. You have to understand that through the lens of the group and what he was able to how he was able to mobilize people. And it's that aspect of his leadership that's routinely overlooked. Actually, as, as I think we get distance from that kind of project, what you get is the lionization or the eulogization of Churchill and the idea that it was something about him, him as an individual and his unique characteristics and not actually about the ways in which it, at that moment in history, he built a very strong sense of collective purpose, collective identity, and did a very good job of people of getting people to buy into it in a way that, for example, he wasn't able to do at the end of the war when the country found itself in a very different place. So, again, the point is, yes, his leadership was absolutely critical, as leadership is now. But, but again, what our book is about and our work is about is really understanding what the source of that effectiveness was. And, again, it was not about his personal unique skills and the fact that he was actually different from, superior to, and above everybody else. It was on the contrary. It was the fact that he built bonds with everybody else, and he created uh, he created that very strong sense that we are all in this together, and we all need to make our contribution. So again, it was about his relationship to the group and his mobilization of the group that was really collective, not, not any particular, as it were, set of skills that he brought to it as an individual, as, by virtue of his personality or something of that form. 
Now, the other thing you're saying, I think, in your book, um, the, the new psychology of um, leadership, um, is that there's a sense in which we're all leaders. So we tend to think of leaders as, as people who run countries or, 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 yeah. or generals who run armies. But in fact, if you're a parent and you're trying to get your kids to, to um, be part of the family and do their homework or take part in a family exercise, you are a leader. If you're a doctor or an academic at a university department, yeah. you are a leader. We're all yeah. actually a sense in which we all are leaders. So you, you're trying to move away yeah. from the notion of a leader as an extremely special person like Alexander the Great and the fact that we should all embrace the notion that leadership is something we should all acquaint ourselves with. Um, any Correct. thoughts about that? Yeah, well, firstly, I'm nodding pretty vigorously as you're saying that. I mean, absolutely. I think if, 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 if leadership in a group is left only to people who have the title of leader, the group will almost inevitably fail. We, you know, go back to the definition of leadership. It's the process of influencing people in a way that motivates them to contribute to the achievement of group goals. The point is everybody and anybody in a group has the capacity to make that uh, kind of contribution and to and to have that role in motivating others. i just give you one really concrete example of that. We did, a while ago now, we did a work, some work with a, a sports psychologist, actually, who was the coach of the um, Australian women's hockey team, Rick Charlesworth. And his point was that he made the hockey ruse the success successful team they were by actually eliminating the role of leader and actually and, and saying no we're not going to have this one person who's going to be the captain and is going to have this role of leader rather I want to create a leaderful a leader full team in which everybody sees themselves as the leader and everybody is all the time asking how can I motivate and mobilize others and help them to achieve those goals and actually again one characteristic of effective teams is yes that actually leadership is distributed through them and, and it isn't the case that leadership is left to others it's a responsibility that everybody takes on for themselves and you're absolutely right too that that's essential for any group it doesn't matter if it's two people going if you you know tonight when you listen well you can't do this now but you, you know you and a couple of friends want to go down the pub well if you've got if you've got a goal of getting there you've probably got to do just a little bit of leadership you've got to organize people you've got to motivate them and work out how you're going to get there okay now that's utterly mundane but actually without that kind of process without that influence process groups just can't work so um, I, I want to get into the book in a, in a moment, but, but given that we, we're now both agreeing that leadership is central to life, um, isn't there a fundamental um, failure of the educational project in schools in particular in educating people that you too can be a leader or it's inevitable and you can either do it well or do it badly? Because your, your book is about the pragmatic notion we can teach leadership. Um, and yet it doesn't get taught at all in schools. You have to go to like West Point Military Academy or these elite institutions. Um, yeah, I think leadership. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting observation, too. I think, you know, I, again, I think that, you know, absolutely that in, 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 its, in its sort of fullness, education should absolutely, uh, you know, con convey and give people that kind of experience. I, I, I think one of the things I would say is that sort of paradoxically, a lot of things that might give people that experience have often been stripped out of the syllabus and of the sort of experience that young people have today notionally in the interest of improving their education. So, I mean, I, actually, I'm no sporting enthusiast. And I, when I was at school, I was completely crap at sport. Let's be clear about that. But nevertheless, you know, from just being, you know, encouraged to do some sport and, 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 and engage in certain kinds of group activities like drama or whatever it is, all of those things give you that experience of group life and the understanding and the acquisition of those skills. And if you take out all those auxiliary group activities, which aren't, 
you know, explicitly about education, then you lose the, I think, the sort of laboratory within which, you know, we, I think, naturally acquire or experiment with these skills. I mean, I, I, I have a very strong sense of having done that at school through, you know, actually really, again, rather mundane things like just doing a bit of drama or a bit of public speaking or whatever it might have been. And, you know, and actually in that process, working out how, you know, actually just coming to understand how much you need other people in order to succeed and then understanding how actually failure to mobilize other people actually means that you can never achieve the things that matter for you either as an individual or as a member of a group. So before we get into your model, let's contrast it with the previous model, which is still very much around. And in the forward, in fact, of your book, the, the person writing the forward laments the fact that the, the, the previous model remains dominant the one that you're attacking so the previous model is the notion as i understand it of the leader as special unique and heroic and that only a very small number of people can be great leaders whereas your model is a more democratic model and uh, and is also about the idea that the really crucial thing is the relationship between the leader and the group and group identity so let's discuss the previous model first so how, how would you describe that model so that, well, that, I mean, one way of describing it is, is, I mean, sometimes in the literature referred to as the great man theory, that, and that comes right back to, that goes right back to Plato and Socrates, but also Carlyle in the 1840s, basically arguing that everything that's ever been achieved on this planet was basically due to the individual contribution of great leaders, people who are exceptional and, 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 and unique. And, and different from everybody else. And I think this Heraclitus said something like, one man is worth 10,000 if he is the best. So the idea there that there are some people who are just destined by, typically by virtue of their genes, uh, you know, or think some preordained force to be, or some divine right to excel in this domain and that the responsibility of the rest of us is merely to uh, behold and lord their great works and to, if you like, be foot soldiers in the great causes that they identify for us to participate in. Um, and I, and I, and again, I think it was, it was stated very stridently in the sort of classics, but I think that's the view that's handed down and is actually implicit in most discussions of, of leadership, uh, today. Yeah. And I think actually, the, yeah, the, the, the preface to the book was written by the Nobel laureate, George Akerlof, you know, and he's coming at this from the perspective of, you know, I think, you know, looking at just like economics and, and, and the world of, of, of business and governance more generally. And, 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 and I think saying, yeah, that this actually is a, is a, is a, a worldview that you see played out, you know, in pretty much every domain of influence where at the end of the day, you know, where we, we believe or are led to believe that it's all about these individuals and their individuality. And again, I, I, again, you don't have to look very far to see that, that model kind of being played out and bought into. Uh, just watch the news tonight and look at how they position and, and, and relate to, you know, the, the actors on the stage, you know, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or, or, you know, whoever it happens to be, you know, it's, it's, it's often very much a celebration of their uniqueness rather than a forensic examination of the way in which they do or don't succeed in building that collective uh, uh, sense of, uh, you know, solidarity and buying to their projects and then looking at the way in which they precisely unleash the leadership potential of others. So again, 
this is another really critical point to make here, is that the proof of leadership is never what leaders do. It's always what others do in their name. So without followership, there is no such thing as leadership. So you can never understand leadership without actually looking at the psychology of followers and what it is that, it, that actually motivates them to uh, get enthusiastic about the those uh, things that uh, leaders encourage them to do. So necessarily the study of leadership can't just be about leaders because the definition actually is about what followers do in their names. And, and again, the, the great sort of gap in the literature uh, and, and, and the science of this, it re re revolves around the complete failure to actually understand leadership from the perspective of followers. But when you do, when you look at the world through that lens, it's pretty obvious that that's critical. I mean, I don't, I, you and I don't do what um, you know Donald Trump says or what the leader of New Zealand sa says because because we don't have we're not in the followership relationship with those people. But actually, what we do do is you no know, look to the leaders of our groups and then our willingness to engage in followership is a function of the, our relationship with those leaders. Do we identify with their projects and what identities, what what forms of shared identity are in play? as we relate to those leaders and, and and the projects that they set out. So you've used the word identity, which is and social identity and shared identity, which is crucial to your new theory in contrast yeah. to the, the great man or the heroic leader uh, model, which came before. So let's talk a bit about that. So there's some yeah. key terms in your model. You talk about identity prototypes, identity yeah. champions, identity entrepreneurs, and identity impresarios. So let's start with identity prototypes. What, what are you referring to there? So the basic idea there is that a leader has to be seen more than anything else as one of us, as someone who understands what we are about. Um, and, and again, very, so we have a group, whatever it is, it might be Democrats or Republicans or English people or footballers or whatever. And the pretty obvious point is that in the world at large, the people that we look to, to for direction it, it, as to our own behavior are the people who represent the group memberships, the identities that are important for us. If I'm a Liverpool supporter, I'm not as it happens, but if I am, I got, I, I'm interested in what Jurgen Klopp has to say, not what um, uh, Jose Mourinho has to say. Okay, if, if I'm a Democrat, I'm interested in what Joe Biden has to say, not what Donald Trump has to say, or interested in the sense of actually wanting to follow and fall in line with what they say. And again, that's just a very basic feature of the world that people routinely overlook. So if you if you listening to this podcast and you say, this is rubbish, all that really matters is whether a leader has you know attributes X, Y, and Z, well, ask why is it that people's responses to various leaders is utterly conditioned by whether that leader is one of us rather than one of them. So a, a very, I think, simple and, and powerful example of that was at the, in the 2016 election in the US. There was pretty widespread agreement that, that Hillary Clinton in terms of the personal attributes, was more kind of suited uh, to the role of president. And actually, uh, exit polls suggested that Republicans thought that too. But the fact was those individual qualities counted for nothing. What mattered was whether or not uh, the leader in question 
uh, Clinton or Trump was was seen to be represent the shared interests of the people who are going to vote for them. Now, the, the sort of from the perspective of the Democrats, the tragedy there was that actually the Democrats weren't as enthusiastic about Clinton as the Republicans were about Trump. So, again, if you fail to mobilize and to represent the group that you're looking to lead, and that can be at different levels of abstraction, you're going to ultimately fail in, in, in those kinds of leadership contests. And, and when we do uh, statistical analysis across lots and lots of different studies, the thing that comes out more than pretty much anything else is that capacity to be seen as one of us. But again, that's just in most uh, analyses of leadership, most discussion of leadership, that's something that's completely sort of missing uh, uh, from uh, the analysis. So identity prototypes is about the notion of the leader being able to successfully convey the notion that I'm I'm one of you and, and you're yeah. one of me. Yeah. Identity yeah. champions, one of us, one of us yeah. uh, identity champions um, advance the interests of the group. Tell us a bit about what it is to be an identity champion. OK, so again, I, so again, so we're saying one level leader has to kind of represent and say, be one of us. But it's not just about, as it were, standing for us. It's about standing up for us. So you you have to when we enter the domain of activity that the group is interested in, whether it's football or politics, whatever it is, it has to be clear that you are acting in our collective interests. And most particularly, you you should not be seen to be acting in your personal interests, i.e. in it for yourself or trying to feather your own nest or actually in it for some other group, some other out group. And again, if you look at, you know, great speeches in history, go into a bookshop and buy a book on great speeches in history, and you'll find that at the core of them is often an appeal to by the leader to explain what it is that they are doing for the group as a whole. The example, actually, I sometimes use is that, which I think is a great speech in that regard, is uh, Queen Elizabeth I's golden speech to Parliament in 1601. She goes in there and she says, look, and, and, and it's quite interesting. It's a, it's a very fascinating speech in, in history. One of perhaps the most influential speeches by a leader, certainly in British history. But she's she's going in there from a position of weakness. And she says, look, I, I just want you to understand above everything else that I am here to do it for you. I'm not interested in myself. I'm not a greedy grasping scraper, I think she says, a greedy scraping grasper. She says, I'm, I'm here and I'm putting my body on the line for England. Now, and actually, you know, what, that's 420 years ago, and you can still feel the power of that sentiment coming through the speech, that you're saying, this is someone yet who I know above all else is going to go into bat for us. And again, that's what you want for leaders. And the more that they can demonstrate that, and the more actually they engage in self-sacrifice and put their personal interests to one side, the more motivated you will be to follow uh, them. Which, interestingly, too, I'll just give you another example of the, of, the, of, the, of the kind of evidence that speaks to that. That's one reason, actually, why leaders' stocks and their things like their charisma increase after they die. Because when they die, you, you, no, you no longer have the suspicion that they are in it for themselves. You can actually talk and understand that they were, uh, you know, they were, you know, they were all about us, and you can kind of procure them for that, 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 for, for that, that, those purposes, if you like. Uh, but again, whenever you have a leader in the flesh when they're living, you always potentially have that sneaky suspicion that maybe they're just doing it for themselves. And, and, and until or unless that's removed, 
um, you, you know, there, there may be all, always a certain amount of guardedness in your enthusiasm for what it is that they are asking you to do. But if you can have that removed, um, and if you actually see, um, you know, that they are actually in the front line and, and taking hits for the team, then you're going to be more confident. I think going back to COVID, I think, you know, I, 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 I think that probably Boris Johnson's stocks have been increased by virtue of the fact that he's been in the front line, he's been in the hospital, so he knows what it like is like. He's not somebody who's like self-quarantining so that he doesn't get exposed to it. You know, I think that, that that's helpful. OK, so ne- the next couple of things are quite interesting because the notion of, of leader as, as innovator or creative act, which, again, yeah. I think is missing a bit yeah. from the previous literature. So I, the, I leader as an identity entrepreneur. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that, so, I, so we've said leaders need to represent a group and they need to and they need to sort of uh, champion the group. But an obvious point is that in lots of situations, you're saying, well, what group? There isn't a group here and lots of organizational contexts. I mean, it's probably, again, people listening to here, they might have a work team that they've got a leadership responsibility for. And they're thinking, yeah, but they, these, these people, they're, they're, they're like cats. You know, it's impossible to herd them. So actually, the issue there is what is the group? And there, um, and this is really Steve's work, it, the, the, the key idea is that leaders need to be on, entrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs in a kind of business sense, but entrepreneurs in a psychological sense where they're working to craft and to cultivate that sense of usness and to explain, you know, who we are, what we're about and where we're going. And, and again, you what you see is that um, is that successful leaders are indeed that's that's really their core currency. I'll give you an example, bit of data from that. If you look at, um, actually, in, in a piece that we're just writing at the moment, if you look at the recent speech by the Queen to, to Britain, or indeed that, uh, the address by, I mentioned Jurgen Klopp, to Liverpool supporters, what you see is those speeches are littered with references to we and us and our. That's what they're appealing to. They're appealing to that sense of shared identity. And we've done archival studies of elections. Actually, if you go look at Australian elections, going back to Federation in 1901. At the time we did this research, there'd been 43 elections, 34 of those elections, that's 80%, were won by the candidate who used we and us most frequently. So again, if you can convincingly uh, mobilize that resource of us and speak to it, then you're in a position of advantage relative to those people who can't or aren't able or don't want to do that. So again, the, 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 the core currency for a leader is that sense of shared identity that they need to co-create with a, a, a followership. And, and in the absence of being able to do that, you won't have any followership and you won't, by virtue of the things we've already said, you won't have any leadership. And the final one, which I think is the most interesting one in your model, is a notion of identity impresario, impresarios who shape reality in the image of group identity. So what's that? So that, again, so again, so the other bit here, right, is so we, I, I keep saying leadership isn't just about representing us or doing it for us. And it's not just about talking about us. I mean, you know, so actually, as a leader, you don't just. Talk, want to talk the talk of identity, you need to walk the walk. And more particularly, you need to allow other people to walk the walk of identity. And the basic point there is that leaders create structures which make 
groups real and allow group members to live out that shared identity. Now, again, lots of examples. I think it's always useful to have in mind what what is it you're talking about here? Well, the example that we use in the book, which I think is a really powerful one, is St. Paul. So at the time that, you know, St. Paul uh, came to the, 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 the fore in, in the Christian church, the Christian church as a unified body didn't really uh, exist. And theologians uh, like Philip Esler, for example, have, have, and indeed lots of theologians are really interested in the question of, well, how did St. Paul manage to, to sort of galvanize the, the, the Christian church and bring people together as a community of Christians? And the answer is, but through creating structures which allowed people to live out their Christianity, things like baptism, again, rituals and festivals, and then, of course, building churches, okay? It's a lot easier to do Christianity if you have a physical space in which you can do it. So, again, the sort of what the point there is that the idea of us needs to be translated into a material reality so that actually people can see their ambitions for the group, this is followers and everybody actually actually making a difference in the world, you know, and actually, yes, you know, yes, actually now I can see not not just that I feel good about this group, but I can see that by virtue of my contribution to it, I'm I'm uh, this leadership is, is making the world in the in the image of us, the group. So we're imposing our will on it. And if you like, collectively uh, sort of making history. So, again, the point there is that leadership is the stuff of, of, of history making, but it does so by by mobilizing the energies of groups and, and creating spaces and places and material outcomes which actually uh, transform the world in, in real world ways and make it a different place. And again, it's not just a different place psychologically, it's a different place physically and materially. OK, but the other thing. Uh, an interesting point your book is making is that the, one of the ways that leaderships or, or great leaders do this is through telling stories and the language they use. And it does feel a little bit um, like um, this is the, the, the crucial bit where something special does have to happen from the leader in, the, in their ability to find the right story and the right language. I mean, you talked about the Queen Elizabeth speech as being rousing and inspirational. So there is yep. something special about the way they deploy. And there's a fantastic example in the book of a speech given by Lyndon Johnson, um, which I'm going to read a little bit of later on after, after your, your response, though. About uh, And what's really interesting about this is that people think that JFK is the great speechmaker, but actually... Actually, uh, this speech by Lyndon Johnson, uh, where he starts off by saying there is no Negro problem, there is no Southern problem, there is only an American problem, is incredibly moving. And he's not seen as, as a great leader because of the Vietnam problem. Um, but what about this idea that you, you're requiring the leader to be a bit, a bit Shakespearean almost? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, again, I, I think all of these... I mean, understanding the group and understanding its history and understanding its stories and mythologies and all of those things is is really important. So actually, when in our own kind of work, the sort of programs and the work we do when we're doing stuff with leaders, you know, the first point we make is there is no substitute for un, for, for getting to know your group. And in particular, one of the, the most sort of serious errors that you can make as a leader is to think that you understand the, your group when you haven't really familiarized yourself with it. And, and actually, there's lots of documented evidence on this that, you know, the first, if you taking over a company, the, one of the worst things you can do is just walk straight in and say, OK, we're going to do this, this, this and this. You need to spend a period of time getting to understand what the group is, what it's about, 
and what the ambitions of its members are, what the stories those members tell are, what are the things that they that they naturally organise around, and and then you need to recruit those materials in in the service of the group yourself, and you know, and that that is that's actually very hard work, but it's also interesting because it's different for every group. You know, the things, the stories, the way you tell them, those things, those those are those are those differ from from group to group, and there is a there is a if you like the the poetry is written in I would say in in, in different forms in different in different types of groups again an, an example might be donald trump like i mean for you know he's not very poetic from a in a shakespearean sense but he but he has a and, and this was true of uh, george bush too george w bush that you know he has a way of relating to the group which actually you know actually kind of if you like for for by virtue of uh, not being desperately sort of uh, finessed and intellectual actually helps to connect with those people because it creates a sense of authentic connection to them. So again, there is a skill uh, often, you know, people often used to make fun of George Bush's Bushisms, you know, his malapropisms. But, 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 um, as, as he said, you know, you misunderestimate me, you know, actually that, that, that capacity to kind of, if you like to have the common touch to your speech is actually and, and to understand your audience and to speak in ways that they recognize is, is really critical. So finding where that poetry is and moving with it and helping to shape it. Yeah, is is is, is critical for for leadership. But I th and I think storytelling generally you know, and sense making and sense giving is, you know, is, is a is a is a commonly recognized, I think, feature of of, of mobilization and, and leadership more generally. Yeah. So the, the other powerful thing about your model is not just it's a different analysis. It's also about the idea we can teach it and that that anyone can become a better leader. And you've also very structured in, in the way it's taught. So you've broken it into a model of, of five R's. So let's talk a bit about that. So the first R is readying. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is readying? Well, actually, very convenient. I mean, in a way, listening to this podcast is readying. It's like actually understanding why groups and why uh, shared identity are so important for leadership. And, and, and the point there is most people in that sense aren't ready for leadership because they haven't really understood that. So when we, you know, the, I think actually most uh, psychological intervention programs often start with a sort of psychoeducational element, like that's true of something like CBT, where you just explain to people, look, what is it that we're going to be doing and why is that important? But in the leadership space, that's particularly important because, again, often people go to leadership programs and they, I think, have the wrong idea in their head about what leadership is, what it looks like and what it's going to require of them. So if you like getting people in the right place, and getting people pointing in the right direction is critical. And, and it's and it's absolutely not something that you can assume that people come to a leadership program with. In fact, if anything, if they've been on a leadership course already, the chances are that they're that they're rather uh, in the wrong place. And, and, and you know, it sounds a bit uh, starless, but, you know, that there a, a bit of re-education is probably required in the, in the nicest, sport and gentlest possible way. But again, I think we have to unlearn some of the ideas we have about leadership in order to do it properly. And we have to, again, I, I actually, I mean, the way we do that really is just actually uh, direct people to the science and to the empirical evidence which we have for all of the propositions that we've been talking about. So, 
again, critically for us, it's not just that the things I'm saying are like, they sound, may sound good or they seem like a good idea. No, these are pretty well grounded in the empirical literature in a way that actually most other models aren't. And, and I think actually familiarizing people with that literature and with that science is is, is a good place to start for pretty much any program of, of, of uh, that's got any kind of real ambitions for education and advancement. So the next R is reflecting. So what is reflecting? So that, again, relates, again, it's good because we, uh, to some extent we've covered that, which is just this point that, look, first thing you've got to do if you, if you want to lead a group is to get to know it, is to understand what that group is. And so sometimes that is about just leaving aside your assumptions about the group and then um, and, and actually approaching it and you talking to the people in the group, finding out what are the things that matter to the people in the group and what are the, we talked a lot about social identity, this sense of, of usness and the sense of uh, internalized group membership. Okay, but go to the team that you're looking to lead and say, what what is this team about for you? What is the team? What are you trying to achieve here? Okay, and actually, um, there's two things there. One is often people's answers will surprise you because you'll think that they were really interested in one thing. And actually, they they might be a bit interested in that, but they may be more interested in something else. And the second thing is, even if you are right with your assumptions, which, of course, often you are, but they, they still people still like to be asked. They still don't. They still like not for you to be making assumptions about what matters to them, and they still uh, f want to feel that when you are doing that, that is going to be a co-production and that's going to be a dialogue that they are inside. Okay, too much kind of leadership activity positions group members, as it were, putatively followers outside the tent. And so reflecting is really saying and providing just taking people through a series of steps where you actually invite them to work with their group to, to if you like, map out uh, what the group is about and to identify the shared terrain and sometimes the, the, the different uh, identities that are at play for different uh, groups of people that you're working with. So really, you know, what is this us that we are, are, are trying uh, to bring together and to advance. And if you don't understand that, again, you, you can't really do leadership. Okay, but the example I give there and is if you look at Jose Mourinho as a, as a, as a, as a football manager, I think, you know, I think, I think when he started out in his career, he was quite successful because I think he, he took the time to understand, um, the teams that he was trying to manage. But as he uh, developed, he cultivated this image of himself as the special one who was above the team. And, and he never seemed to go through that same process of actually just trying to work out what the team is about. Look at someone like Jurgen Klopp, and he is absolutely somebody who is all about trying to realize, ultimately, that's where we're going, but that what, what, you know, what the group is about and what the, t the players within it are, are, are trying to achieve. And so never positioning yourself above the group, always positioning yourself as someone who's there in the service of the group. But you can't do that if you don't understand what the group is. So it sounds like reflecting is kind of like gathering the data, going out and, and finding out um, and, and mingling with the group. And then we've got this other R called representing, which is a, a creative act that the leader then takes the raw data and crystallizes it into a simple message. Have I, have I got that right? Yeah, well, I think that's also about, yeah, understanding, like, so that's, that's bringing those things together, those discussions, again, in a kind of structured way around saying, okay, what is it that we are trying to achieve and achieve, get some sort of clarity on what, uh, where we need to be going as a group so that you are in a position to represent 
again, where the, the meaning of the group and then the purpose of the group. So those two elements. So the first bit was the reflecting bit is like, what is this group? Just very straightforwardly, what is this group about? But then more particularly, where what are our collective ambitions and, um, and what are the things, what are the buttons that I need, the collective buttons that I need to be pressing in order, uh, in order for us to move forward? So that's more, more specifically re related to, um, you know, what we, uh, what we are about and where we want uh, to go. So again, and that's in, in many ways, actually that bit of the leadership, that's not a particularly radical thing. Most, a lot of leadership programs have that element to them. It's just that they haven't done the previous two R's, if you like. And of course, the point here is that you've actually done the work to understand what the group is that you need to be working with to now uh, you know, to, to now have these discussions about about what what matters to us, um, and once you've and, and and then of course that's going to provide a springboard for the next stages, which is how are we going to do it. Yeah. So the final two R's are realizing and reporting. Tell us a bit about those two. So the last thing is is really then developing collective strategy, um, plans, uh, uh, setting goals. Uh, doing those things which are a bit related to that idea of identity impresarioship. So creating structures, processes that actually are suited to the group's goals. So again, I had that example previously. So if I was working with a church, I would say through the previous stage, I'd worked out what our church was about, what we wanted to do. And now I might be saying, OK, well, let's put our energies into building a church or doing this particular activity, you know, feeding the poor or setting up a food bank or um, or doing great missionary work or wherever it is that matters to you as a group. And now you're saying, OK, well, if we're going to do this thing, We've got to work out actually what the structures are that are going to support it and, and make that a material reality. So that's really a kind of an embodiment phase in which you are uh, putting in place uh, concrete structures, concrete activities that are going to help you to realize those collective ambitions. So, so again, that's not in it. The idea that you engage in strategic planning as a leader, I think, is, is common to lots of leadership programs. One bit that's often missing, though, again, is strategic planning with and for whom. And in, in the work that we do, we said that's critical to actually identify, you know, who you're doing the strategic planning for. And critically, you know, strategic planning is not something that you can do on your own or with other groups. You need to do that strategic planning with the groups that you're looking to mobilize. If you exclude would-be followers from those conversations, from those activities, you're, by and large, you're going to lose them. And that is why most efforts at organizational change actually fail. Most 60 to 70 percent of organizational change fails precisely because it fails to mobilize and recruit the energies of followers by, again, placing them outside that uh, that sort of co-production tent. But but our program is really around saying, um, no, if, if, you, if we're going to go on this journey together, we all need to be on board and we all need to be helping to create the world in, through which and in which we're going to achieve those things. So, um, going back to your book, The New Psychology of Leadership, you're, you're very empir empirically driven. So you're coming up with this new model and you're doing science and you're looking at the data. And uh, unfortunately, in the field of leadership, there's a lot of other stuff out there which is not yeah. data driven. Yeah. It's kind of like um, people come up with their stuff, their gurus, they flog books. 
Um, and uh, yeah. w- whether it actually has any link to empiricism or data is, is co- almost kind of irrelevant. So the un- other unusual thing about your approach is not just you coming up with a new model, you're, you're constantly trying to validate it in terms of what yeah. the data say. So aren't you struggling a bit in a field that doesn't yeah. seem that interested in, in the empirical uh, thing? You're interested uh, in yeah, that's an interesting. Question. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I think, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, ha- I mean, I wouldn't want to do it any other way. I wouldn't want to be just someone who's on a soapbox sharing my views of the world. I mean, you know, uh, because that would presumably mean I'd have had to be successful in some other domain where, by virtue of my success, it was deemed that I had, you know, whatever the wherewithal to be a great leader. I don't know, sport or something of that form or whatever. But, um, you, you know, I... But there's you know, a lot of yeah, that a science, in the field, though, isn't there? There is a lot of that. You're absolutely right. And it's a very crowded marketplace. You know, yeah. you know, if this is... Um, if the, if we're if the metaphor was uh, you know the, the, the COVID you know there are plenty of cures for the problem here and pretty much anybody who has a view or has any idea of like organisational success or any experience of it casts themselves as a leader and will share their views with you and and in some cases they will get gain a certain amount of traction in doing that and actually the other thing too is I wouldn't want to say that every everything that those people say is wrong I think actually. You know, by and large, most observ- lots, most of the observations of people in this field kind of approximate to the sorts of things I'm talking about because I think they're basically true and they are substantiated by empirical evidence. So I think you would find bits of what we're saying in lots of the things that people say there. It's just they haven't got a very sound theoretical basis for them. And as you say, they haven't got a really strong empirical basis for them. But again, uh, you know, that's at the end of the day, I'm not paid to deliver leadership programs or to um, or to sell books, I am paid to as, as, a, as a researcher to do high quality science, and so that's that's my and my colleagues' priority. Um, and 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 if having done that, then people who are interested in that want to come to see our work and engage with that's great. And and I have to say too, it's not the case that that you know we're completely ignored. I think actually increasingly the perspective that we're advocating for is getting traction in various kind of quarters so i don't feel like neglected in any way and 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 again i i i don't desire you know i don't have any or we i don't think have any desire to sort of take over the world what we do have is is a desire to impose some sort of theoretical empirical order on it that helps people actually um you know achieve those those things that matter to them and, and, and their causes, and that fits those together, I think, within a sort of broadly speaking, a constructive uh, framework. So, so you know, yeah, I, 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 I can sort of live with that. And indeed, uh, you know, I, I, I feel comfortable with where we're traveling. And I think that the, 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 the success that we're having actually in, in, in gaining a, a sort of following for, for this perspective. I'll just to give you one example of that. We've just completed a global study it was published last year. It was 26 countries with many thousands of participants from around the world actually validating some of the the, the uh, ideas that I, I, I've been we've been talking through. And actually, what we showed was that these ideas of what we call identity leadership explained effective leadership over and above the 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 the, uh, the, the sort of explanatory power of pretty much every other sort of thing that you could put into the mix. So again, I'm very happy anytime someone wants to put, 
my ideas up against them, our ideas up against theirs in a kind of horse race. I'm very comfortable that if you if you run that race, that that that, that we will be you know at the front of it. Um, and, and again, I think that you know as a scientist, I don't see there's much really alternative uh, to that. But you're right. There's plenty of people who've done a pretty good job of uh, scoping out and uh, filling in alternative spaces. And, you know, I, I sort of say good luck to them. I haven't got to, I, you know, I, you know, I think I don't, and I don't want to close down that discussion either. And, 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 you know, anytime anyone wants to have a discussion around this, I'm very happy to have it. And I hope that this this conversation also just opens up people's minds to the sort of debate that we might want to have around this topic in ways that they find useful and maybe fleshes out some of the ideas. I don't think you need to convert everybody. You just need to maybe move them in in one direction rather than another. So, again, at one level, too, in the in the public domain, our ambitions are, uh, you know, they're not imperialistic, um, uh, uh, they, but, they, but they are nevertheless to, to help people uh, to, to, to progress in whatever way is going to work for them. Well, you're being very kind. I still want to stay with this point, though, a little bit, which is that, um, you know, the top 10 of the bestseller list will be, let's say, some book written by some captain of a rugby team, let's say, or a football team or whatever, uh, which experienced some success. And therefore, people turn to them as leadership gurus. Now, you're right that they may have stumbled across some of the stuff that you're talking about that comes from the empirical base, but they would have stumbled across it. And maybe they have some intuition. But it is also the case that because... They're not empirically driven. They, they may have been successful. Some of the stuff as well that they will attribute to their success will just be plainly wrong. They'll, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll be talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, 10 yeah. things. Three of them might be right, but the other seven yeah. will be wrong. And yeah. Um, uh, yeah. so there, there is yeah. – uh, I, I accept the, the fact you've been very kind to the people who stumble into the field by dint of the fact – they ran a successful rugby team for a while. Um, there's still a problem, which is unless you use empiricism, you don't know which bit really is true and which isn't. And that's the problem. And that, yeah, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. And I mean, so, so yeah, so I think that's right. I mean, I, and, but, I, but maybe that through their experiential thing, again, you put them in the, in the place of that theory and then that's going to help them maybe weed out some of that stuff if they want to. Or maybe those people who are listening to them too. I assume you're not going to be able to influence those people because they've got their products and they, and they, and they kind of believe in it. And so actually is, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, what, what we're competing for is their followers and their, and their enthusiasms. And yeah, and I would say, look, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in leadership, yeah, just go and engage with the, the empirical literature and, and, and subject it to some sort of test yourself and see, well, to what extent does that kind of work? The other thing I would say there, too, I, when you mentioned that thing about, you're right, about these people out there, I'm sort of sometimes uh, minded, there's, sort of, there's a funny story, I think, about Sven Erikson, when, when England were doing well in the, I don't know when it was, the 1990 World Cup, they printed a whole raft of kind of, he had a book on leadership, he also had a, a CD, which was about, you know, inspirational, motivational music, and he had a whole portfolio of products and 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 but they were trashed the day after England were knocked out in the semi-finals so 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 the point there is yeah like those things have a day and it comes and goes and those I think those books um they don't they don't last very long on the bookshelf they have a very short half-life and and I, I and we've been doing this research for 30 years and, it, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the theory and the body of evidence that supports it's only getting stronger. So, so again, that gives me some confidence that, um, you know, that, that, okay, when the second edition of our book is 
published that it's not going to be pulped the following Tuesday. And that, you know, and in, in a world where all things are ephemeral and fleeting, you know, that gives me some and us, I think, some confidence and some consolation. So and also, too, I think hopefully if people are interested in this. Actually, this is an idea or set of ideas that have been around for some time and they have a past, a present and importantly, a future. Okay, but one final point, and I appreciate I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'm coming at an attack now from another angle, which is from the, the notion of psychology as a science. And one of the problems, in my view, and, and maybe my question is going to lead you to run screaming from the room, is that, <laughs> that, that scientists, psychologists as scientists, want to measure stuff. And at the heart of science is the notion of the measurable. But the problem is, if you only ever study stuff that you can measure or measure easily, you end up studying stuff that may not be that important. And one of the reasons why the science of psychology has neglected this very important subject of leadership is when you talk about the, the, the Queen Elizabeth I's speech uh, and the inspirational element of it, or LBJ's speech, it's difficult to capture that scientifically. You, you're, yeah. you're, what's interesting about your work is you're trying to journey into that territory of what is it about that speech that, that is so powerful. And psychologists have been wary of venturing yep. into that stuff. They want to just do research on IQ tests because you can yeah, measure absolutely. IQ. Yeah. yeah. My question is, that's so is a brilliant. There, uh, yeah. Is that a problem? That, no, that is a, firstly, I'd say that's a brilliant question. And, and, and I think that's the first time I've, and I've been asked lots of questions about leadership. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. I think it's probably the best and most important question to ask. And, and, and actually the, the answer is actually critical. If you go back over everything we've said, the answer is in what we've been saying. Because I think when people have been looking to measure leadership, they've been looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. Because when they're saying, oh, measuring leadership, we need to go to Johnson's speech or, you know, Roosevelt's speech or Churchill's speech or whatever it is, or Klopp's speech or whatever. No, the measure of leadership is followership. What do followers do, you know, having been uh, subjected to, uh, exposed to uh, one person's leadership rather than another person's or one person's leadership at a particular point in time. And so in our experiments, you know, the critical dependent measure, the thing that we're interested in measuring is not so much what leaders do. That's something typically we manipulate. What we're interested is the motivation of followers. And actually, when I talked about that global project, it's precisely that that we measure. What we look at in our experiments is, well, if I if I just say to you, if I say to a listener who's listening now, I say, uh, go and do this. Oh, OK, I want you to go and do this. OK, versus I say, um, look, I think it's a good idea for us to do this or let's do this. What you're going to find is that the latter, the second thing, let's do this rather than you do this or go and do this, is more effective. I can show that empirically. Okay. Now, and but the the measure thing there is about what that person does and whether or not I'm successful in influencing them. Which again is why you, whenever you're having a discussion about leadership, you need to come back to that definition because the the proof of the pudding is in your success in influencing others and however wonderful you are however wonderful donald trump for example thinks he is if at the end of the day nobody votes for him and nobody does what he says it doesn't matter because he's not doing leadership he's doing something else 
Uh, and again, it's that capacity to look for the right thing in the right place and to demonstrate its, its, its greater utility that I think differentiates a lot of what we're saying from much of what's out there. Because at the end of the day, if your models of leadership lead you to become obsessed or fixate or to fetishize leaders and what they're doing to it and, and, and exclude the energies and the enthusiasms of followers, you've got it all wrong. Well, Alexander Haslam, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating interview. Just to remind the listeners that this second edition of the book, it's called The New Psychology of Leadership, Identity, Influence and Power by Alexander Haslam, Stephen Reicher and Michael Platow. Uh, and it's published by Routledge. Um, uh, so, um, Alexander, um, Alex uh, Haslam, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Roger. It was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it.